It's the 14th of November, 2020. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush. This is the Room Now podcast. This is the ACR 2020 retrospective, wherein I sort of look back at what happened in the past week at ACR. Room Now was ever-present during the meeting. We had a tremendous uh, group of faculty. I think we had 11, no, 13 faculty members covering the meeting. We had uh, a total of 11 um, big shot key opinion leaders doing perspective videos for us and leading uh, different learning groups. Uh, we put out over 1,100 tweets. We did a, over 160 videos. I think we did about 20 different podcasts. So there's no shortage of content to learn from the ACR and you don't even need to listen to me you can go back and listen to those podcasts uh, and really take it in from the people who were at all the sessions. But I'll give you a few of my highlights. Number one, virtual is doable. It really was. I mean, I think that while there's a lot of hesitancy uh, by many to learn this way, uh, my surveys of rheumatologists before the meeting and after the meeting say about 20% of you are totally disengaged on virtual and on ACR, and I don't know if it's virtual or ACR that you're disengaged from, but 80% are consuming it in one way, shape, or another. 90% gave the ACR an A or a B grade, they did, meaning they did very well. ACR spent a lot of time planning this meeting, and I think they did an exemplary job, except for a few like technical glitches and downloads, or not, not so much downloads, actually, in, in video uh, and and sound sometimes, but really it worked out really well. Everybody found a way around it. So the issue is, are you going to do more of these virtual things? You're going to wait to get back to, you know, flying and lugging posters and the real donut wall to take in the ACR the way you've always wanted it. You know what? You better get used to virtual because this is going to go on for some time. You heard it here, maybe not first, but you heard it here again. I think the next big thing was LTF, hashtag LTF, listen to Fauci. We did listen to Fauci. He gave us a one-hour seminar on um, Saturday, uh, and it was great. Um, uh, if you haven't listened to Fauci's one-hour lecture, uh, you really should. It's uh, it's A to Z. It says a lot of things about the, uh, the COVID-19 that you may not know, especially the microbiology of it, the origins of it. Uh, and certainly the, the, the procedures to control it. I think it's a well, well worthwhile listen if you haven't done it. Uh, I get, in fact, everybody did it. Fauci broke the internet. It was really, there were tons of people who couldn't get on to watch it. It was that, it was that serious. And I think that uh, Tony Fauci's uh, address really speaks to what's going on still, and that is COVID is still ever present. While many of us want to hope this thing will go away. We're kind of burying our heads in the sand, trying to do our daily work, manage our families and, and whatnot, um, hoping that when we come up for air, we'll be able to go outside and go to a concert and uh, eat at your favorite restaurant. But um, I think that the amount of COVID data that was presented, especially about its effects on practices was impressive. Uh, there were a lot of things that were kind of interesting, you know, like there was a Chinese abstract about um, monitoring uh, patients with an app 
Uh, and I mean, it wasn't, there's plenty of reports like that, but this was like hundreds and thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of, of data points collected by patients and showing, um, you know, for RA and for lupus that they were hitting their target um, measure of control, you know, 50 to 60% of the time, except for when a holiday happened and then it dropped 10 points in disease control, things like that. Vivian Bykirk had a report about a Canadian tools for patient self-assessment that could be used during uh, the uh, telemedicine visits, saying that patient self-exams are as good as your exams. Uh, and I think that that is probably true. Actually, someone said yesterday, Marty Bergman said, at the uh, extremes of assessment, meaning when it's really clear and when it's really obvious, uh, both good and bad as far as disease uh, activity measures, you can see it really well by televideo. Um, it's in between that you probably need the face-to-face -face visits. Um, next, I, I like the Tico Spa. It's one of those tight controls, Tycora. Um, uh, there was one, for, it was one for RA. There was a, a tight control study for psoriatic arthritis. And now we have a tight control study for axial spondyloarthritis using an ASAS set of outcome measures. It was a study of uh, 80 patients in both arms and one arm was treated with a protocol to achieve tight control uh, every month. And there was a protocolized change until they got there. And the other arm was treated every three months um, with whatever the doc thought um, and without necessarily having a protocol change. The interesting thing was at the end of the study, which I believe was, I wanna say 48 weeks, um, there was no difference in the two groups. While there was a numeric um, um, edge for those that were in the tight control group, uh, it wasn't statistically significant, um, and I'm not sure the result warranted all the assessments and interventions. Uh, clearly, the, the tight control group got more biologics, um, but in the end, they didn't do that much better. So that's, I think, a very interesting study. The next uh, interesting study was a late-breaking abstract LO6, and this was um, the use of uh, GCM-CSF uh, monoclonal antibody in the treatment of um, uh, giant cell arteritis. So the idea here was a, was a phase two study of um, mavrolimumab um, using the drug or placebo in new onset or relapsing refractory GCA patients, only 35 in each of those groups. Um, they had that active disease and the drug was shown to be very, very effective. So uh, this is yet, maybe yet another way of finding to, uh, how to use less steroids and use a biologic to better control an often difficult disease. Next, the FAST study. This is a regulatory commitment study uh, mandated by the EMA. Um, when Fabuxostat was approved, especially when Fabuxostat was approved with some worry about cardiac outcomes. And the FAST study was a study that was done in Europe it was uh, over 6,000 patients who were on allopurinol with, for their gout. And then they were then randomized to receive either allopurinol, continued allopurinol, or febuxostat doses of 80. And it could be escalated to 120, but really almost everybody was on 80 milligrams a day. Five-year study, uh, very few dropouts, 6%. Um, minority of uh, disease flares, equal in both groups, as you would expect. And in the end, the Fabuxostat group was not any different than the, the allopurinol group when it came to, one, lowering uric acid. In fact, Fabuxostat was better. 
two cardiovascular events that was like MI and other MACE events were equal between the groups and with an edge for Febuxostat. Um, and also no differences in cardiac deaths. So that's important. Uh, I think that this sort of, you know, tells us a few things. We know that um, there have been multiple signals in the past where Febuxostat looked like it might be worse than allopurinol in um, patients having cardiac events, but then there were other studies where it wasn't. Um, and I think this speaks to the complexity of managing and treating and studying gout. There's a high comorbidity burden here, especially when it comes to cardiovascular risk. These are complex, poorly controlled patients, often with many of the features of the metabolic syndrome. And, you know, uric acid complicates things even more so than metabolic syndrome will. And then trying to make changes in the face of all that, you know, a lot of things are going to happen, which can be ascribed to one drug or another. This begs the question whether or not Febuxostat needs to have a boxed warning. I don't think it's going to change the need to use allopurinol first and Febuxostat second. I think it will change whether or not you should worry more about Febuxostat in patients who may be at cardiovascular risk. Next, the CMRA study. This is a plenary session um, uh, presentation by Dr. Jeff Curtis. Um, got a lot of discussion at the meeting. Um, the CMRA study is basically a study of withdrawal. Patients with rheumatoid arthritis who are in solid remission for more than six months with a SDI score of less than 3.3. That's the same as a CDI score of less than three or my, my clinic, a gas of less than three. It, it's a really, it's a strong measure of remission for more than six months on etanercept and methotrexate in RA. And then once you have been in remission six months, you have a randomized withdrawal. Either you stay on the combo or you stay only on methotrexate or only on etanercept. And guess what? The combo did much better, like 57%. The, um, the patients on etanercept did much better than those who stayed on methotrexate where it was like, I don't know, 50% versus 27%. Don't hold me those numbers, but it's just basically saying the bottom line is you do worse just being on methotrexate. You do pretty darn good being on either etanercept or etanercept and methotrexate, which says that they're kind of equal. Um, but in this six-month uh, uh, six follow-up study, um, it didn't matter whether you stayed on both or stayed on etanercept. It's a strong statement for stopping the methotrexate, which is actually in line with the ACR guidelines, um, but opposed to the ULR guidelines for the management of RA. So a lot of talk about that. I don't know if that's going to change my therapy, but I think it's an impressive study and well done. Next, uh, another JAK inhibitor hits the marketplace in rheumatology, and it's not a JAK, but it's in the Janus kinase family, it is a TIC2 inhibitor. Um, uh, Ducravacitinib is a new TIC2 inhibitor. It's been studied in psoriasis, looks pretty good, and now it's being studied in psoriatic arthritis, where the results there were very, very good. You know, psoriatic arthritis looked very good when they were given this TIC2 inhibitor. It's an early phase two study, so it looks great. We'll see how it does in phase three. Congratulations to them. Next, I think, was the talk about ACR um, guidelines. I did a a, a video, and uh, I think it became part of the podcast um, during the meeting. If you want to see my take and my rant on the ACR guidelines, and believe me, I got a seven-minute long, you know, um, crazy rant on on this where I call it red flags and 
um, speed bumps or red flags and detours is the name of the video. But the bottom line is uh, ACR has codified its uh, treatment regimens for us to look at, adhere to, discuss. This is an update of the 2015 guidelines. And since then we've had, you know, uh, several new drugs uh, approved, including cerilumab, two JAK inhibitors and baricitinib and apatacitinib, um, and adding them to the mix. But a lot of the things in there were uh, spot on, you know, treat to target, um, minimize use of corticosteroids, use methotrexate as an anchor drug. Had a few things that I thought were absolutely goofy, actually recommending sulfazalazine over methotrexate for patients with um, um, mildly active disease who are DMARD naive, makes no sense to me. Um, I use my best drug first, whether you have mild disease or moderate or severe disease. Um, and then they said, if you're having methotrexate toxicity on oral methotrexate, they recommended switching to split oral dosing or parenteral sub-Q um, methotrexate as a way of managing that or increasing folic acid. Sorry, Charlie, all of those are wrong. It's not really even a guideline. That's like a wish. And that actually reflects a lot of practice, which is wrong. If you switch from oral methotrexate that's giving you side effects and toxicity to split oral dosing, you get more drug delivered. And guess what? You get more toxicity. The same is said for parenteral methotrexate. You get more drug delivered and more toxicity. So I don't understand the switch um, other than to confuse the patient. And then more folic acid is a pipe dream about getting better. Folic acid has been shown to reduce the number of drug discontinuations and reduce LFTs. But other than that, it doesn't help oral ulcers in any substantial way or proven way. Uh, there are also guidelines put out for JIA. They, uh, they're unique in that they talked about oligoarthritis, TMJ management, and systemic JIA management. Look those up. Uh, we wrote about them during the meeting. Uh, Michelle Petrie had some interesting observations at the meeting. I'll summarize it by, and you should look at the video that, that I did with her, uh, where she says that lupus anticoagulant is the most predictive of the antiphospholipid test, clotting test that we do in our lupus patients, most predictive for predicting arterial and venous thrombosis. It is superior to the antiphospholipid panel. It's superior to the beta-2 glycoprotein 1 IgA, although that is also uh, the second her second best choice. Uh, and it's better than double positivity and triple positivity in predicting these events. I thought that was really important. That's abstracts 1261, 1262. There was a lot of stuff at the meeting about machine learning. Uh, and you know, I've written a, a blog that I really liked called Moneyball. The idea being, give me tons and tons of data and help me be smarter about my guess-like decisions. My decisions are very highly informed, but let's face it, I am guessing when I'm going to stop someone who's on etanercept and move on to another drug. Is it another TNF inhibitor? Is it going to be another MOA? Am I going to go oral with another small molecule? It's a guesswork. You know, it's preference. It's sometimes patient preference. Sometimes it's guided by concern over particular toxicity, which would be less with choice number three. But why not use big data to help us figure it out? Well, there's a lot of stuff on machine learning. Most of it is dizzying and confusing and really not applicable in the real world at this point. I encourage people to do more of machine learning, artificial intelligence to help us make better decisions. But at this point, I can only really endorse some of the studies that look at um, using machine learning to better analyze x-rays, whether it's looking at peripheral x-rays or axial x-rays in the spondoarthropathy patients. So other than that, you know, 
this is machine learning gone mad at this meeting. Um, they will save cost. Um, they're not going to be useful until they have predictive value, but nonetheless, interesting. Also interesting, studies on metabol metabolomics and proteomics, really with some impressive data. I think it's a little early for their applic application. For instance, um, Dr. Fava in Boston had a plenary session talk on IL-16 as a urinary proteomic biomarker that correlates highly with um, um, glomerulonephritis, um, especially you know, type uh, class three and class four. Um, also with the activity of the, of the histology, not the chronicity. And it also changes as the patient improves. It's a, and there's a lot of IL-16. It's the second most common cytokine found in the kidney. So a, a really impressive work done by um, Fava and colleagues on that plenary session um, talk. Um, three more things. Uh, TOFA uh, has been shown to work in enclosing spondylitis, a 16-week result. Um, using ASAS-20 as a, a response outcome, 56 versus 29 against placebo, ASAS-40, more stringent outcome. Uh, those on TOFA had a 40% response versus 12% placebo. That's abstract. L11 looked really good. The select PSA study, This come, the select studies are all on upadacitinib, showing, again, it works really well in upadacitinib. 15 or 30 milligrams had better results than placebo, especially when looking at patient-reported outcomes that was abstract 1341. And then lastly, um, uh, you know, actually I should say two other abstracts, both by Dr. Khanna, different Dr. Khanna's. Um, uh, Dr. Khanna from the University of Michigan presented the results of a recipe study, wherein they studied patients who were going on case and used mycophenolate as a way of abrogating the immunogenicity of the PEG molecule which sometimes limits the efficacy and safety of the drug. Well, again, this was a really impressive study. 24-week um, outcomes, uh, you, their primary endpoint was lowering serum uric acid. It was 68% uh, versus 30% in placebo. That was abstract number 952. But again, it looked really good. It gave much better clinical responses. More, It looks like it's going to have more durability. Um, and I think that was impressive. Dinesh Khanna presented a new phase two trial um, of an, a new autotaxin inhibitor in patients with early cutaneous scleroderma that also looked highly impressive. Again, I would encourage you to look at that report as well. That's it for this week on the podcast. Go to our website, find a lot of stuff about uh, the coverage of the meeting. Um, I, other things that we did at the meeting, besides the podcast and all the videos, we have another feature on our website called ACRIQ. You can do a little exam as to what you learned at the ACR, sort of self-score yourself and see how you did. Um, and I think we also you can also sign up for topic reports where you can get emails of your favorite if you follow lupus or JAK inhibitors or uh, TNFs or scleroderma. RA, gout, et cetera, you can get a download of all the things that were reported from the past week at the meeting. That's it. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.